Hello, this is Terry. And this is Coco. And this is Adventures in Organized Chaos. Where we talk about... Local politics. National politics. Some culture. Lots of culture. Some movies. Definitely some movies? Maybe some books. Mmm. We talk about organizing. Absolutely. Let's talk about that movement work. Let's get into it. All right. Coco, we back. Hey, Terry, what's good? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Feels like so long ago. I feel like I, I skipped out on you. You totally last, skipped out on I'm me last sorry. week. I'm sorry. I can't believe out. you. Yeah. Not <laughs> nice. It wasn't <laughs> nice of you. Yeah. But luckily, we're coming back full force today. Like full force. We got two guests. Yes. Three guests, if you want to include the silent partner in the <laughs> There's corner. always a silent partner in the room. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> So, so who we got in the building? I don't know. You want to introduce yourself? Who wants to go first? Please. All right. So uh, my name is Astrid D'Souza, and I worked in a, uh, at the Center for Human Development for like 23 years in the capacity of community support program and liaison at Providence and East Hampton and Appleton here in Holyoke. Nice. And I have to say this, the, the, pre, the previous <laughs> guest is one of my favorites. Um, so good morning, good evening, whatever this is going to come out. My name is John Vilas. Um, I'm a state senator here in Massachusetts. I have the distinct honor of representing the community that we now find ourselves. But I think for purposes of this discussion, um, I'm currently the chair of the Mental Health Substance Use and Recovery Committee for the state of Massachusetts. So. A lot, of, a lot of important topics packed in there. Thanks for having me. Uh, Senator Vilas here uh, to talk mental health today. You sit on the Joint Committee for Mental Health and Substance Use. And so we just wanted to kind of maybe not grill you a little bit, but uh, see what the state of mental health in Massachusetts is um, and really talk about some of the progress and work that the state is doing to just make space and create space and increase kind of the access to mental, mental health care for, for everyone in the Commonwealth. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I mean, to me, it is, in my humble opinion, I think behavioral health in general, right? So as part of that, I'm talking about, obviously, mental health. I'm talking about SUD, substance use disorders. Um, and I'm kind of talking about them all because, as we were talking before, you brought up a really important word in this space, you know, the intersections of them, right? We know the data is pretty, pretty clear that we know that in many instances, folks struggling with an SUD also, there's a lot of times mental health concerns, there's housing concerns, there's a lot of issues out there. There's a lot of barriers to people in this space. Um, so it's, I would argue that any conversation that talks about them as if they're a separate silo mm -hmm. is really a, a wasted conversation and maybe even an opportunity to kind of get at the issues. Um, so yeah. Mm, sweet. Astrid, you worked at uh, CHD for a while, right? Yes. Recently retired. Yep. Yeah. So, <laughs> so how do you feel like? <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so you might have some questions for the senator. What are some of the things that's on your mind? Uh, I think uh, what's important is to look at the individuals with all their so-called diagnosis or labels or whatever, mm -hmm. and see where they're at when they're coming or receiving services because mm -hmm. quite often they they are incarcerated or they're in the treatment facilities and then all of a sudden their time in jail is over so now they get handed off to a community program um, 
that's where it starts with the barriers because a lot of time we get a, a stack of paperwork with the client so we can decide where this client is going, what fits. And then trying to um, assist them with their needs, mm -hmm. find out what they need, what they want for themselves. Do they want housing? Do they want a job? Do they want to move back with their family or friends? But what's what gets in the way here? Mm -hmm. Mostly, they don't have ID. They don't have a driver's license. But they've been in the system. So how did they get in the system without all out without without identification, and then get released without identification? Mm -hmm. They have no money. They have no income. So where are the means? available to assist them with getting over that barrier, not having ID, not having a birth certificate, yeah. not having an address, and they're homeless and their family's not engaged. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the biggest issues that we're facing in the community. And I don't know if there's a possibility to assist with waivers regarding taking a person to the DMV. They have no birth certificate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They have no money to get a birth certificate. They have no money to get an ID. So we're kind of yeah. stuck. So so how do people fall through the cracks on the basics? Right. Yeah, it's so one of the one of the first votes that I took and it and it was it was when I was a state rep, and it was years ago, and I forget the exact year that it was, but it was a long time ago. And let's just say this, it was before I kind of began this journey of what I consider to be both my personal lived experience, but also my intellectual curiosity on this topic. And one of the things that was long the case in Massachusetts was that if you were convicted of a drug offense, and it really made no difference what that offense was, you lost your driver's license. Mm -hmm. And, and that, to me, when we were taking it up, I just remember trying to apply my, my legal knowledge of, okay, a, a drug offense that many of them had no impact whatsoever on driving whatsoever. Someone gets convicted of said offense, and then we take, the Commonwealth takes away their driver's license. And to me, that just seemed like the most counterintuitive just mm -hmm. nonsensical thing in the world. Because if you think about it, and I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to say, in many instances, if we, in most instances, I would say, if you take away someone's driver's license and say you can't drive because you committed this offense that again, and most of them had nothing to do with, with driving, driving, erratic driving. In many instances, it is the Commonwealth of Massachusetts saying, we are going to make it more likely that you are going to go back to your old ways of whatever got you here in the first place. And mm -hmm. that was made no sense to me. Um, and that was years back then. So the short answer is that I think government in many respects, no one's ever gonna accuse us of being a nimble organization and moving <laughs> fast and, and, and going and meeting the need as the need arises. But I think steps like that go a long way to, to pushing back at that and saying, okay, mm -hmm. you, you, you've got a license. Go go do whatever you want to do with your license, but hopefully transportation for a job, right? right. To yeah. kind of get out there and work. And then I think there's a really, I think we need to do a much better job <clears throat> as a commonwealth. And this probably goes to government 
in general. It's like looking at, you know, organizations like CHD, Tapestry. We can go mm -hmm. on and on and on, BHN, naming all these different organizations and say, we are going to create a fund. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a fund for this very purpose. And we're going to call it the incidentals of getting your life back on track. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. we are going to mm -hmm. fund that. So whatever it may be, whether it be to going to the RMV, whether it be transportation to get there, whether it be a birth certificate, we are going to enable you to do that. Mm. I would argue if we did that, things like recidivism and mm. other stuff out there, you would see a drastic implosion of that type of stuff. But getting the Commonwealth to understand that the nonprofits really eat our lunch in terms of being able to do that, um, is not an easy topic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. there, there is this, it, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, an independent, whatever you may be, there is a notion out there that a lot of times government knows better than people that do this on a daily basis. And, mm -hmm. no, and nothing could be further from the truth. A, a sign, in my opinion, of a very nimble, agile government is knowing who to delegate to, delegate to, and who to fund. Mm. Um, so that's a big part of it. So, so I think really what we're saying is we need to do a better job of meeting people where they are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You mentioned something that that funding getting your life back on track. I think one of the <laughs> things that's coming to mind is really, in a nutshell, what we're getting at is how do we build communities that are supporting folks that are being that are previously incarcerated and coming out but also folks that are struggling through mental health crisis or substance use disorders, how can we help build out that infrastructure in our communities? And when you talk about the money, well, the first thought that comes to mind is opioid settlements, right? 100%. And, and, 100%. and so uh, just a question, what, what would, how would you like to see those millions of dollars be spent in our communities throughout the Commonwealth? It's funny you ask that question because I am so, so I just, I just have you any of you, I'm gonna digress for a second, but only a second. Have any of you seen Painkiller yet? Yes. I mean, yes. Yeah, I, that and Dope Sick too. And, dope, and dope Sick. Dope Sick was the one for me. Yeah. And, and and it's just you look at these folks, and I am so frustrated with the fact that up until this point, and obviously I'm talking about the Sackler family here, mm -hmm. and, and why they're not in jail. Why they're not? Why they're not in jail with <laughs> with what they did. Um, if you don't watch that and get angry and say, okay, this opiate settlement money is great, but we need more, right. we need more. The fact that they still have billions of dollars is absolutely asinine to me. And if we weren't on public radio, I'd use a lot more colorful language <laughs> about how much. I mean, my wife was looking at me. I must have thrown like three different bowls at the television yesterday, the point where I thought she was gonna ask me to leave. I was that upset. Mm. It was ridiculous. Um, what was your question again? <laughs> I'm just just was thinking about how you. I'm glad you're angry about the Sacklers and McKesson. I see you too. You know what I mean. Yeah. You're also a part of it. And CVS, all of you pharmacy. I see all of you. Yeah. But the question was, how would you like to see opioid funding be used in our communities for some of these issues that we were talking about? All right, I'm going to digress again because it's 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 relevant. But now I'm going to remember the question this time around. This time my silent partner better be paying attention here to give me a little. Text message or something, <laughs> you know. So you look at what what, what I thought Painkiller did a better job than Dope Sick, and I saw Dope Sick a while ago. It was it was marvelous, mm -hmm. but I just saw a Pain uh, Painkiller. Was it really talk? It really demonstrated the infrastructure and the resources that Purdue put into mm -hmm. having these. You know, in many instances, 
very beautiful, beautiful ladies kind of go out and ply their trade to the doctors, mm -hmm. to everybody, to get them to prescribe. It was systematic. Um, it was systematic. Yes. So I, I'm kind of comparing and contrasting that to now, now let's say let's go up to state prison, right? Let's go to a state prison where an individual who might be in there for some type of trafficking of offenses, you know, what is the difference between those two and what they did and the lives that they impacted? Mm -hmm. So you want to talk about inequalities and equity and stuff like that. That's a really, really good place to start. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things, so for, for the listeners who don't know, Painkiller is a new Netflix series or Netflix series about the opioid crisis. And it focuses mostly on kind of the internal workings of Purdue Pharma and the conversations that were happening there. Dope Sick is more focused in rural West Virginia, I think it is, and really talking about like the folks that were affected by the opioid crisis. I think for Dope Sick, for me, it it triggered me because it reminded me of all of these weird relationships we had during that time where these younger folks were hanging out with older folks getting opioids getting pills from these and it was just this very strange world show, yeah. you know what i mean yeah. like a very strange existence um and anyway so at any rate we're just talking about how that money can be used potentially be used in our communities to try to like help whether that's help folks get back on track they don't have IDs, birth certificates, don't have a place to stay. I know CHD just actually started the low threshold housing program too, which is really great. And I'm yeah. excited for the success of that and the growth of that. But with an incredibly long wait list. Right. Through no through no fault. I mean, yeah. just that that's a whole and we could talk about that because that's inextricably related to what we're talking about is the is the housing challenges. You know, I, it's funny. I read a quote the other day on a book. And it was solve the opiate crisis, solve the substance use crisis, mm -hmm. and you've solved every challenge in America. Yeah. And if you think about how it ties into every, and I thought about that and I paused and it, and it makes a lot of sense. But to your question, how would I, if I was the king, if I was the everybody, how would I spend that money? We have a lot of gaps in what I would refer to as the continuum of care, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got... You've got detox, right? Mm -hmm. So anyone who knows anything about detox knows that it's not treatment. Detox is literally separating a substance from your body. That's it. There's no, this is, you know, maybe next time you want to think twice about using fentanyl, using cocaine, using whatever, drinking, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. whatever the vice is, whatever the addiction is. So that continuum of care. So a lot of times what happens is someone goes and goes to detox and then they get out and it's okay. Well, first, let's let's acknowledge one of the most important things that right when you get out of detox, because your tolerance is down, that is when you are the most vulnerable for a drug overdose. We're losing people left and right. So we need a better system. So we're talking about, you know, to, to, to draw the first analogy, when folks get out of incarceration, wherever it may be, jail or prison, you know, that warm handoff. We need to do a better job with a warm handoff through the continuum of care. Mm -hmm. Okay, so detox, and then maybe some inpatient, and then maybe some outpatient. And the more time that you give individuals to fall through the cracks, the more likely they're gonna fall through the cracks. Right. Um, so you need to tighten up those various steps of recovery. And I think there's a role of government to play. So what does that mean? Well, it means on the inpatient side, how about more treatment beds? Mm -hmm. How about more treatment beds? How about that for starters? Um, how about allowing as a state more people to be recovery co coaches, more people to be peer support specialists? Mm -hmm. You talk to any, I was out in Hoyoke the other day, there's a great program going on. You know, there's there's tapestry in there going out, which we're going next week out with tapestry. So the, the Hoyoke Police Department has this fascinating program that I was intrigued by. And it was someone recently overdoses, 
And they're just going out and playing clothes and they're interacting with people. And one of the things that was really made abundantly clear was that they're interacting with people. Folks are coming up to them. They're viewing them. You know, they're not viewing them as they might, you know, typically view a, 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 a police officer in a police vehicle, et cetera. Because mm-hmm. it's intimidating. Because it's intimidating, all that stuff. They're just seeing a person. And what these folks were saying involved in this program is that, you know, they want to get them a bed, but there's no beds. Right. There, there's no beds. Um, so that's a big part of that. And then the last thing I'd say is the we we have to say that we have a workforce shortage in Massachusetts, in Western Mass, in this nation is an understatement. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's treatment beds. But anytime a provider says to me, We are opening up these many beds, my next question is, do you have the staff to work those beds? Because if you don't have the staff, they're not beds. Right. They're just beds out there. So tightening up that continuum of care, ensuring that folks have less time to kind of fall, again, kind of fall through those cracks is a big deal. And the last thing I'll say, and then I'd be fascinated to hear someone else's take too, I think we need to do a much better job prevention. Mm -hmm. There's a big part of the prevention side. Prevention doesn't get talked about as much. I'm gonna say something and I'm sure I'm gonna get text messages from people all over the place upset about what I'm gonna say. We have empirical data that says that DARE something that many of us probably took growing up mm-hmm. is not is not a really good form of prevention <laughs> that don't work it, right. it, it, you know it, maybe maybe it does for some and you want to know what god bless if you're one of those people but then it's just it, to say that we do dare and dare only and that's going to be the way that we encourage our young folks not to use it's mm. you're, you're just it's you're ignoring enough. data right Right. I don't know those those egg commercials with your brain on drugs. Those, the one, those, were, those Herman worked had for one me. Too, right? Well, Pee Wee Herman had the one with crack, right? And talking about crack was whack. I, I appreciated that. I do. <laughs> um, but you know, I hear a lot about mental health, substance abuse um, disorder, and like helping people manage what they're dealing with and trying to get them in the beds, get them treatment. This is all incredibly important. I had a conversation this morning with a woman who would like to see opioid funds used partially to um, help out the kids they're leaving behind, Mm. you know, because there's a whole generation of kids whose parents are addicted, absentee, you know, you have entire generation growing up with their grandparents, great grandparents, like, you know, what about all these kids? Where are they at? You know, I don't hear a lot of conversation about that anywhere. Um, in fact, this morning in the conversation, um, it was kind of the first time I'd even thought of it, you know, even though I know children who live with their grandparents, but it never dawned on me that a lot of times the reason is because they're the parent is actually having these these kind of issues. Right. Right. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. The the, the, the kids, the grandparents, um, the, the number of folks the number of grandparents that are raising kids right now is a direct result, um, not not just of a, of a of a drug overdose and death, but also a lot of times DCF comes in and it's just the grandparents that are stepping up. So those supports, um, I, I guess I'd just say this too. So we had something called the Harm Reduction Report that came out in 2019. And accompanying that report was also was also uh, a report, you know, a report on a report, shocking in government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, but one of the things that it said was that, you know, we know with absolute certainty that, at least for opiates, you know, we have the gold standard 
uh, of treatment, and it's the form of medication for opiate use disorder. Many people refer to it as MAT, yeah. medication-assisted treatment. So we're talking about Suboxone, we're talking about methadone, and we're talking about Vivitrol. The number of people that use that, utilize those medications compared to the number of people struggling with an SUD, specifically an opiate use disorder, mm -hmm. um, the numbers don't add up. So we need to get out of the way and we need to encourage more providers to prescribe this medication. Mm -hmm. It is ridiculous. And, and this is kind of a real, we could spend a lot of time geeking out on this, if you will, because I have a lot of thoughts on this, but this is where that relationship with the federal government really comes into play because Massachusetts can only do so much um, in terms of, and again, I won't go down a rabbit hole, but there was this thing for the longest time called an X waiver. And the X waiver is how providers prescribe Suboxone. And they needed this waiver from the DEA to be able to do it. Mm. Um, and, and what was happening is that not enough prescribers were doing it, were prescribing Suboxone. They got rid of that during COVID and still, we don't have numbers of people, providers, providing Suboxone right. treatment. So mm -hmm. there's a disconnect, and I'm convinced a lot of it has to do with how our healthcare providers are being taught their field. They need to learn more about addiction, you know, in their in their residencies, in their schooling, all that stuff. Did you read Drug Use for Grown Ups by Dr. Carl Hart? It's funny you say that. I, I, I'm, I'm halfway done through it right now. I'm halfway, I'm, I'm halfway done for it right now. I'm a, he's, so he's on my list, so I have to tell you, I, I'm gonna get, I'm, an, I'm, I'm slowly getting a reputation for kind of being like a stalker in this space. So I'll get a book and he's on the list, list of like my, my soon to be victims of people that I just send these, <laughs> these emails to. And I call it and I say, hey, my name is such and such and this is what I do. I love to chat with you. And I have to be honest with you, they all chat. I, you know, it's oddly enough, side note, I'm the same way. I have a notebook full of letters that I've, I've never sent. But every time I get done reading a book, I'll always write a letter to that author, especially if it was super impactful. Dr. Carhart is one of those. Because the book is really great. But I think that just gets me to thinking about safe consumption sites and other ways. Just, just a revelation that people are using substances. It's what we do, what we have done forever, whether that's for recreational use, spiritual enlightenment, whatever those reasons are, people are using them. And I just feel like for us, we got to move into a culture where we, we recognize that truth right and understand that truth and then make space for folks to consume however they would like but in safe spaces right and and with safety so i don't know if what what your take is on safe consumption sites and kind of those efforts towards harm reduction so so here's what i'd say about you know overdose prevention centers um which i'm told is now the the proper way to okay. refer no no I, there's there's i was gonna say there's a joke to it but this is very serious conversations but the name for these sites, every time I'm on a meeting on these sites, I say something and then the person looks at me like, you know that's not how you refer to them, right? Mm -hmm. So I get corrected all of the time on this to the point where I'm just sticking with overdose prevention centers. Sounds good. You could be right. <laughs> yeah. You could be right, I have no idea, but we know we're talking about the same thing. Here's my thoughts on them. Every single person who is interested in this conversation should do themselves a favor and go to New York City because New York City has the only two government-mandated safe consumption sites in America. One is in East Harlem. I went about four months ago, and it was absolutely fascinating. In front of my eyes, I saw, I think it was four to five, might have been three, 
people overdose right in front of me. Um, and it just changed my world because I didn't realize that the overwhelming majority of overdoses, the individual who's overdosing just needs help breathing um, as opposed to Narcan, et cetera. So anyway, details matter. And here's what I mean by that. If you look at the debate raging in East Harlem, there's two, again, Washington Heights and East Harlem. I went East Harlem. If you go to East Harlem, you get off the, 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 the I was going to say the T, but it's not the T, the Metro. Metro. Um, and you're going to go there and you're going to say, oh, wow. You know, you're going to see outright, you're going to see a very close, if you've ever seen an open air drug market, it's going to look like that. You're going to see transactions. You're going to see stuff like that. So the first thing that I would say in this debate was just in the New York Times, it was just the other day having this. So there's this debate between those on the one hand who say, you're rewarding bad behavior. What are you doing? You can't do this. And then there's the other side who's saying, you're keeping people alive. Mm -hmm. So I think the first question we need to ask ourselves is a values-driven question. It's, do we want to keep people alive? Mm -hmm. Because what has changed, what has changed markedly really in the past three to five years is how contaminated the drug supply is, right? Mm. If you go out right now, you're gonna be hard pressed to find heroin on the streets. You're gonna be hard pressed to find heroin anywhere right now. Everything is fentanyl. Fentanyl is incredibly more powerful than both heroin and morphine. There's folks asking for it by name. Absolutely. A absolutely. Be don't don't want your don't want heroin. Don't want it. They don't even want it anymore. And it's right. you know, and that's kind of driving the sub, sub supply side of it. Mm -hmm. Um I fall on the I want to keep people alive because safe consumption sites, now I've changed how I'm referring <laughs> to it right now. I like opioid <laughs> prevention centers yeah, though. Because it's very clear about what the purpose of this space is for, right? Like they always like the the data for overdoses and, and deaths death by overdose in those spaces is zero, right? And like there's never there, been, there's never just, been a documented one. Happen. Right. So what you need to do in my estimation, if I was going to be the person who was the main proponent for these sites, I'm a big believer in messaging and messaging matters. Mm -hmm. And what's happened in this debate, again, it's evolved into the keeping people alive versus the rewarding bad behavior, the two warring camps, if you will. And that third way is that I think really, really matters from an optics messaging standpoint is, wait a second, we have data telling us that people that utilize these sites, by I forget the percentage point, it just recently changed, are more likely to get treatment. Mm -hmm. They're there and then they just get treatment. And in fact, in Canada, where I have not been yet, but plan on going, it's actually the first floor is the overdose prevention site, and the second floor is the treatment. So it's just, okay, you're ready to go get treatment, walk on upstairs, right upstairs. and then there you are. To the National Institute of Health Sciences, I think I'm getting the right government alphabet suit agency, just put out, they are gonna be funding a multi-year um, study on the New York site. So the first question, first thing I would say is, where you put them matters. Mm. Sam Rivera, who I absolutely love, who's the founder of On Point, the New York City ones, says, look, you need to go where people are using drugs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you want them to be effective, you need to go where people are using drugs because some of the initial data shows us that, yeah, overdoses are going down, but they're going down in the area closely right there, almost co-located with it. So if you really want to have an impact, you actually need multiple yeah. consumption sites to really have an impact. So this person can go, that person can go. Um, 
but as Dr. Humphreys, one of my main stockies, if you will, a, a professor at Stanford, he runs Stanford's graduate program on addiction, said, look, this is no longer a public health issue. The, the data is clear. This is a cultural and political issue, period, end of story. What I can tell you right now, and this is kind of sort of hot off the press, is that the new commissioner of DPH, the Department of Public Health, Robbie Goldstein, who prior to this was like the second or third in charge of CDC, so he's no, he's no lightweight, said that, look, where we are right now as an administration, so the new Healy administration, is we are actually looking at this to determine if we can do this without the legislature, mm -hmm. if we can just mm -hmm. do this unilaterally. Um, mm -hmm. So look, let's be honest. And I think if we're gonna have this debate, we do need to be honest because one of the things, and I'll go back to On Point in East Harlem, the distance from literally the, the building across the street, so whatever the building is right across the street in East Harlem is a school. Mm. It's a school. And, and some of the most vocal opposition to what Sam Rivera is doing at On Point is, is mm. parents of the kids saying, I'm walking my kid to school and I'm seeing needles, right. whatever they're being used for. And, and I think, the one thing I don't think we can do is I don't think we can just say, oh, you're just being fear mongers. I don't, because I don't, I, I think that's a legit concern. Mm -hmm. right. That's a family walking their kid to school, seeing this stuff. They don't want to be exposed to the, the smell of smoking crack cocaine and all that stuff. So again, location matters. Mm -hmm. So I think as part of that dialogue, if you're going to do it and you're going to do it in a way that it can be effective, I think all people need to be involved. And I think you need to start off by saying, okay, we're saving lives. But let's not ignore, let's not, let's not just trivialize the concerns of these families right. and these businesses. Let's talk about them. And I think, I think a lot of that is, is stigma, right? And, and working through that stigma and, and, and being honest with ourselves. It's, it's, it's well, this, there's there's yeah. also an argument to be made for like having to look at that is probably why you know, a lot of kids did stay away from it. Right. You know, I definitely walked by some 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 shady situations on my way to school when I was little. And, you know, there's things you would never be curious about because you saw the effects of it. I mean, we also had to watch videos in school of like all kinds of creepy things around drug use and stuff. And I think it made a big difference. I don't know that we're still doing that. You know, I think a little bit of fear mongering for kids can be healthy yeah. and also educating them, you know, on what this is and you know what what it can turn your life into because it seems like we're we have such a fragmented way of dealing with things everything feels like an add-on right you know when does everything come together to become more holistic everything can't be just like i mean i've used some really bad software programs as a, as a pattern maker and i have to say the ones that work the best are the ones where the program is made for what i'm doing mm -hmm. not the ones that are made like with like another add-on button here and here and here to do something else right. you know like it just things are not working together we're not meshing we're not communicating you know we have so many nonprofits who or, or many of them are doing kind of the same thing, which I think is a little weird. Um, <laughs> you know, like, why can't we form like Voltron and get things done? Like, I, I, it's really hard for me to understand how we can talk about really caring for people when everybody's hands out waiting for a paycheck. You know, when do we get to the point where we actually focus on the humans and less on less on me 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 I, I would i mean you know me i'm gonna i'm gonna blame it on the nonprofit structure itself <laughs> right and like there's a lot of 
let's answer for this grant funding. Let's make sure salaries are paid. Let's make sure folks are compensated for their labor. Let's make sure we don't. There's a lot of cross, money moving around. There's a lot of money and responsibility, right, and accountability that has to take place. And sometimes, you know, I'm I'm actually an addiction studies minor right now, so like that's part of why this is something. But like, I, what I'm seeing is actually it's funny because I dropped out originally. <laughs> of school because of the red tape, right? And because of all of these rules and regulations that stood in the way from me, I just wanted to help somebody. I just wanted to be there and be present. And then all of the rules and the regulations kind of was just like there and you gotta know them because you don't wanna cross certain rules and lines. So there, I, I see that a lot in human services work, but there is some space for human ser- service workers, caseworkers to kind of step outside that box a little bit. And I feel like maybe that's another way in which opioid funding or wherever other resources are available can help incentivize caseworkers that are going a little bit of that extra mile. Same thing for the teachers too. I see you out there buying school supplies um, who can help <laughs> yeah. you like go that extra mile and right. And, and do the, what we're talking about is like really strengthening the fabric of our communities for those folks yeah. who are like least thought of least considered right we didn't even talk about climate change yet you know what i mean like <laughs> we haven't gotten but when to the we weather. but when we haven't even gotten to the weather yet <laughs> but when you talk about the weather even like those folks who are homeless those folks who with mental illness those folks with substance use disorders are going to be those that are going to feel the brunt of it all you know what i mean and the worst that this society ever has to offer a lot of us are just like they deserve it you know what i mean some of us are kind of walking around with that type of mindset so The work that we're talking about here is what are those things that we need to do, whether on a policy level and Coco, I see you and know you had came up with some of those bills. But what can we do on a policy level, but also just on a communal level? Right. And to to help strengthen that and build better support for folks that are going through it right now. You know, Mm. yeah, we're talking about. Go ahead. Please. Yeah. I I think a lot of this needs to go into educating folks not only kids, but also families, adults. Because if you look at statistics, just about every family has a substance user or addicted person or food addiction, Mm -hmm. cutting, it's all part of the program in their family or know somebody closely that that is afflicted with this. Mm. And and unless you really get to see that person, it could be you, it could be your daughter, it yeah. could be your mom or your dad. There's a lot of denial in public yeah. when it's yeah. all happening at home. And that's it's where that conflict comes from, right? Like the stigma. Yeah. You know, I don't want to talk about this. They deserve it. They didn't listen. And yes. the blame, the blame, blame game. And that's not how we. Yeah, it's not how we grow. Go forward. It's uh. <laughs> If you ever, if you ever hear me, I'm just going to say this. You, you all, I, I got a one year old. Like if you, if you ever hear me say, "Not going to happen to my kid," I want, I'm, I'm giving you permission to assault and batter me. Okay, because <laughs> yes. the reality is, is that so? One of the things that I have filed a bill, right? So, so availability of Narcan. Um, mm-hmm. That that is something that we know it keeps people alive. And, and we're having conversations. So I filed a bill that essentially Narcan in schools. Mm-hmm. And for the life of me, I don't understand why every school in Massachusetts does not have Narcan. Yeah, um, It should be in the first aid I, I got a story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't want to I don't want to name any names <clears throat> or point any fingers. But when I first moved here five years ago, I worked at a, an institution, an organization. You can probably guess where this is for those longtime listeners. <laughs> but I worked at this place. And as I'm cleaning up the building, I found a tin of bundles. Oh. And nobody in the building knew what it was. I was the only one that knew. Right. That knew what it was, first of all. And then nobody knew if there was Narcan available in this institution. And I'm like, y'all get state and federal funding. Like, I feel like it should be a requirement that you're trained in and are aware, especially in a city mm. that has an opioid crisis, a clear opioid crisis. Clear. It was mind blowing to me that nobody knew what it was. And I think it's I think it's tied to stigma. Yeah. And I think it's tied to, and that's where I was going with, with my little guy. It's like, I, I think there are a lot of guardians, parents, um, grandparents, um, who kind of look at it and say, no, not going to happen to my son or daughter. Not going to happen to, you know, they were raised differently. Um, and, and, and we've got a lot of graves right now, mm-hmm. you know, filled by people who were raised differently um, because that's the nature of the beast that we're doing. And, you know, so we're putting out those initial numbers um, and that bill's starting to get a lot of momentum because it's, oh, that's where I was starting to go with that, that initial study, right? We, we know with absolute certainty that we can reduce the number of overdoses if we just did two simple things. One of them I already referenced, increase the number of patient, pay people who are on medication assisted treatment, mm-hmm. right? So getting rid of that withdrawal, getting rid of it, which two of the three are actually opiates themselves. Um, so it kind of prevents that sickness from happening, but then also availability of Narcan. Right now, so many people's lives would be saved if there was Narcan more readily available. And this notion that it might not happen in a school. It's happening in schools. We yeah. know of overdoses in schools, so big priority in my decision. Go ahead. I, well, I, I, I want to go back to the medical assisted therapy. One of the stats that I did see not too long ago is the availability and where those, where those spaces are placed. Hmm. And we know that there's these huge health disparities. If you look at Hartford, for example, and the separation between West Hartford and East Hartford and like the health. So the same thing is happening here in in Massachusetts. Streets over health disparities can just be drastic. So what are you saying to like create spaces, make spaces where these are these therapies are more available right now? They're kind of concentrated in certain spots. Right. And therefore, you get these concentrations of substance use folks that are just gathering there. You got the NIMBY argument that's like, I don't want that in my, you know what I mean? Like, so how can we create more of these spaces without, again, with also considering to your comment, like those folks who are like, I, I don't know, I want my kid walking past needles. I don't want my, pe-. I, I will also say, I grew up in DC. <laughs> I grew up in, <laughs> I, and, and Baltimore in the 80s, okay, and the 90s. What I, like, I don't care what y'all throwing at me here in Massachusetts is nothing compared to what I saw coming up as a kid. You know what I mean? Like the, yeah. Yeah. So, but I just, I mean, I think about that all the time is like how those places are really concentrated. The therapies are, and then the access, not not everybody has insurance. And I know Massachusetts is great at making sure folks are insured to be able to have access to it. But yeah, there's another one. It it, it needs to be, it it needs to be spread out. You know, I'm just going to quote Mayor Garcia and I hope I don't jack up his quote. So sorry, Mayor, (laughs) if you're you're listening. But last Thursday when we had the, um, 
Overdose Awareness Day on August 31st. Mm-hmm. It was like statewide problems require statewide solutions. Mm-hmm. And, and what's happening is that you're seeing, and, and, and you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna remove ourselves from Western Mass for a second. We're gonna talk about Mass and Cass in Ooh. Boston. And, and so you've got this area where you happen, so we, we can blame any number of things. Long Island Bridge closes the huge treatment facility, but we've got this really, really big mass of folks. Um, and it, and it also happens to coincide where there's a lot of treatment services, a lot of methadone clinics, a lot of things in that area, which is good for that for that treatment. But what it also does is it it it, it not encourages it it, it brings people right. who are still in the throes of their addiction to those areas. So from my standpoint, to me, it's let's let's spread this around, right? Like it's like why is it only? communities you know same communities over and over again that are stepping up and doing this stuff Mm -hmm. like when is this you know and i hate saying this but this is one of my biggest pet peeves sometimes and i hate political labels but in so many instances you see you know you, you drive through a community that many people will say is a very, 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 very progressive community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you'll see lawn signs out there mm-hmm. like, you know, love is welcome here and like all this stuff. But I will guarantee you that, no, I shouldn't say that, but what are they stepping up with actually real solutions? Right. There's more to being an advocate and helping your neighbor than putting a lawn sign on your lawn that says, all are welcome here. What are you doing actually to do that? Because mm. what's happening is all of the communities, so for my district, Holyoke, Chicopee, West Springfield, and I don't have Springfield, is where the epicenter of most of all of these things we're talking about are located. Mm-hmm. And it's in many instances, and I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole here right now, but in many instances, what you're doing in these instances is you're putting poverty on top of poverty. Awesome. And it's, it, 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 and just I don't- concentrating it. It's concentrating it, mm-hmm. and it makes it that much harder to kind of dig yourself out of it and help folks out. You know, you know. I want a let, let's have a let's have a methadone clinic in Longmeadow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm gonna get my my phone's already gonna be blown up with text <laughs> messages for friends. Oh dear. Yeah, I, but oh, yeah. I mean, like, and that's and, and and I'm just saying that, right? And you could say any community. You could you could yeah. fill in the blanks. I'm just throwing mm-hmm. Longmeadow out there. You know, it could be any community that's out there. It needs to be. Again, to quote Mayor Garcia, statewide problems, mm-hmm. which this most certainly is, require yeah. statewide solutions. Yeah, why are we allowing uh, cities to export their their residents to us, you know? Yeah. It doesn't and make a whole lot of I sense. I was yeah. even hearing, like, for <laughs> some friends that are up in the uh, New Bedford area, like, some folks would come for the services around the New Bedford area and then end up falling out of treatment, and then there's an open and available drug market right there for them. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? So like so, as they there. fall through those cracks, still there, right? Mm-hmm. And so again, you're just kind of keeping that cycle. Sure, there might be an, a drug market in Longmeadow too. Yeah. I'm not get. I might get yeah. some text messages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we do not sell yeah, drugs yeah, yeah, in yeah. Longmeadow. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are models that work internationally. You know, I mean, I know I'm I'm about to step in it with socialism, but you know, Uh-oh. there are nations that. <laughs> treat their people, have um, treatment centers. There are people who go and use before going to work. You know, they're like functioning addicts. They they have families. They hold full-time jobs. They provide, you know, for their families. They work in their communities. They they do a lot of good things, but they're they're living with addiction somehow. Right. Right. And it's the society who's who have to, um, has to come to a point where they're actually thinking different. And 
in a lot of ways, I think, you know, as the U.S., we're a really young country. And unfortunately, we have to, like, fall over everything before we learn. And we, and we started off with some very Puritan values, <laughs> yeah, right? That exactly. was trying to control how folks live their lives Absolutely. and enjoy themselves and <laughs> lived in, you know what I mean? So it's no so, wonder there's so much stigma right. <laughs> when because you're never even allowed to talk about anything right. from the beginning. Shouts so. out to Massachusetts. I see you. <laughs> 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 but, you know, I just wonder, um, I just wonder why we, we haven't spent more time or maybe people have just studying the solutions of other nations to see how we can try to implement them here. And I, I think that this treatment, the treatment centers you talked about in New York are a good example of something like that in that direction. Mm -hmm. But there are, you know, holistic ways to treat your whole society without making everybody feel like they're, you know, labeled mm -hmm. full time. So the doctor, I had just because you brought it back up, back to On Point in, <laughs> in, in, in East Harlem, the doctor was great. She, she, the, she was, she came from the overdose prevention sites in Canada. Mm -hmm. and, and so she was here and, and I said, now what's the data say, right? I was like, you know, always, I was asking, what's the data say about how you folks have done, right? Because what I'm seeing, you're saving lives. She goes, she looked at me and she laughed. She was Canadian. She goes, she goes, we don't have it yet. She goes, you Americans love American data. Mm -hmm. and, and I was like, huh. So, and that, and I thought it was interesting because then that study was just announced that we, in fact, we're going to, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to study it. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I don't know enough. I'm not a, I'm not a social scientist or whatever that would be, um, but but we need we always need a feasibility study, right? Yeah. And then it's like people are still dying, yeah. right? Families are still being broken apart. Our healthcare system is still trash. Our, our folks are still being incarcerated for low level drug offenses. But we'll we'll go ahead and feasibility study this thing to death and figure out if what folks are saying, the science, all of the work that folks have been doing for generations. We'll study and see if that actually is going to work and what what's crazy look, look at look at philadelphia look at i mean look at philadelphia right so philadelphia has this section kensington right oh, that, God, yeah. That, yeah. that 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 makes what we're talking about kind of look like i mean again every, every every suffering is real i don't mean to mi minimize anything that anyone's going through but it, it, it's really the epicenter of what you're seeing and i forget the name of the 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 place that wanted to come up with a come up with a site and to your point about studies and being long is that so initially that the U.S. attorney under the Trump administration came in and said, no, you can't do this. It violates the federal law that prohibits folks from meeting at a certain place in that structure mm -hmm. being used as a, this statute is known as the crack house statute. Mm -hmm. um, that is how it is literally cited in court wow. cases as the crack house statute. Um, so that is the federal statute on point that says you can't do this. So Philadelphia and this organization challenged it. Um, Feds came in, said, nope, judges working its way up the process. And then the Biden administration came around and said, hold a second, hold on a second. We want to do a little more of a deep dive. You know, this could be a good thing. We want to see it. Year and a half ago, mm -hmm. to your point, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, how many deaths, how many overdoses yeah. here, where we are, right. you know? And wouldn't it be better to have these people in a building, getting treatment, starting on the first floor with, you know, use and going upstairs for treatment than having them wandering around in the streets i mean right. there's got that's got to be better than what's going on now it's yeah i mean and i think that's all so i wish we were at the point right now in this conversation where it was okay we've established that the data is clear this works but now we're getting into the all right where are we going to put it 
okay, how are we gonna evenly spread this out so it's not the same communities getting it over and over again? How are we gonna take into a concern mm. the neighborhood concerns, like the actual discussions mm -hmm. that could get us somewhere as opposed to the, is it good or not? Well, the data is clear on that. It's, it's we know that it saves lives. If, that, if that's what you're after, and if society, we want to keep people alive, and look, here's the unfortunate reality. Right. There are a number of people who would say, you wanna know what? If, if you continue to use drugs um, and you die, that's on you. That's on you. And it's, you know, it's that if we don't acknowledge that that sentiment exists, because um, it does. And, yeah. and, and, that, and that becomes important because that's when you enter the political space, right? Mm -hmm. and, many, and that's what Dr. Humphreys was talking about. This is now a social and political conversation. The public health component of this is over. It saves lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll um we we didn't take any breaks we just kind of <laughs> kept going i don't know what time we're at we'll have to check the time here in a second but one of the things that um i kind of wanted to switch gears i had a theory that potentially we could work more towards reducing triggers rather than thinking about kind of a lot of times when we're talking about mental health work it seems like we're doing it after the fact after a crisis or kind of in the middle of one but what happens if we as a society society start to like identify and address some of the common triggers, common things that push us and that are like moving us towards those crises, towards using substances? What could we do as a community, as a municipality, as a state to try to reduce some of those triggers? And that's coming from I went to a workshop where folks were talking about folks who were previously incarcerated get this you're you're you were locked up for two years five years ten years you get out you decide to go to community college right and you say i'm going to get my life back on track when you go into that school right and you start to attend college you might smell certain chemicals right that are same chemicals used while you were incarcerated you might eat a meal served by airmark I'm not, <laughs> right that was same meal that was served while you were incarcerated even the sound of walkie talkies right could be a trigger and and send you back to being incarcerated so that's kind of was was my motivation my thinking what can we do to like consider those triggers consider those hardships and then try to eliminate them or reduce them as much as possible mm. right that's that's a thought just a random thought <laughs> no i mean it, it, no it's intriguing right because we know i mean triggers are i mean you have oh, look uh, me i'll talk about me right a person in recovery right triggers i i need on a daily basis i need to avoid triggers at all costs right mm -hmm. like if i start seeing okay like this person is just really 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 like I, I don't have any use for this person whereas before i might have engaged right i might have engaged and try to win this person over with verbal jousting you know what now it's pretty simple say a quick prayer for them walk away right you know it just try to try to try to do that and, and a lot of triggers are obviously subjective to the person in question what gets them going mm -hmm. And I guess my question would be, and why I'm intrigued by what you're saying, is we know that triggers immediately precede a relapse or some Absolutely. type of a, some type of a, so I guess my question would be, how you go from theory, okay, we know triggers lead to relapse, lead to certain behaviors. What is that, what does that look like in the policy space? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I'm, that that's kind of where I'm, pausing to think about what you had in mind yeah i don't i don't know that answer either right <laughs> but like i mean i brought up airmark I, again i'm not hopefully nobody hits me with a cease and desist <laughs> but i'm just saying like they they sucker 
a lot of institutions into like hundred year contracts, first of all. So like a school system serving Aramark food can't get out of that contract. It's the same food that's being served in your jail, in your county jail, right? Mm. Those types of things, like, should we figure out how to reduce that? That we don't, I mean, again, it even takes us thinking about how the food that we eat can be a trigger, right? And can t send us back to spaces that we don't want to be in again. You know what I mean? So, but I don't know what that looks like on a policy level. I don't, I'm not saying, yeah, no, it's a, it's I'm not a, saying, you know, no, but go I, after Airmark. No, no. <laughs> but when you said it the first time, I, I thought you were talking about an, like an earmark, like from the state. I'm like, yeah. I'm like oh, go ahead. Someone just started to say something. No, but the, well, I, I, think, I think one of the, it goes back to the individual. And if they're working with somebody or have like a community support program that they're working with, then usually you start out with doing an assessment and asking all these questions. And you can find out, well, what brought you here? How did this all happen to you? What what do you want to do with your life? Do you want to work? Or do you want to just, at this time, focus on education so you can get a better job? But you have to also share some of your experiences mm -hmm. so that you learn how to avoid going down that same road over and over again it may be just not going back to the park and hanging out with your friends because that's when that's how you start drinking once you start drinking you might have some other ideas mm -hmm. so let's figure out what your triggers are let's get a therapist on board mm -hmm. and maybe a psychiatrist maybe you need some medication to help you you know medication assisted treatment etc so but that's where it go, all goes back to the individual, and that person has to feel safe mm. yeah. so they can share some of these serious hardships they went through. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, and I can't help but, but wonder, you know, if someone doesn't have a, a stable housing situation to go back to, if that's not like a huge trigger for a lot mm -hmm. of people. Right. Oh, you know, because if you're going back to yeah. a household where everything started there to begin with that's not helpful i mean i don't know not having stable living i think that's a good one right like yeah, maybe it's really even, hard that's the big trigger that was kind of that earlier question talking about those intersections right and i think that's a good point coco where you're like okay well maybe one of those triggers is not having stable housing so how can policy level we can help support you know what i mean and, and build some of that out um and i know some of that work is going on but making that a part of the conversation mm -hmm. right and i think we had that conversation when we were talking about the office of tenant protections and like making sure that we include that type of language into the reasons why mm -hmm. protecting our tenants is so important right you know no no i didn't mean to go no go ahead no, 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 no. <laughs> so so i, I just just immediately getting back to that i think one of the challenges and i couldn't agree more right it's like talking to someone whether it be cognitive behavioral therapy or any, anything that's out there i think the challenge becomes let's say and i've heard this a lot and i'm not going to mention any town city or anything um but let's say someone has to go and get it their daily methadone dose and part of that process requires them to walk by their dealer's house, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like mm -hmm. it, you know, how do you get by that trick? How do you how do you yeah. reduce that one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that, so that that to me is the, the 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 more pressing, if you will, in terms of how do we deal with triggers 
that the individual, even if they wanted to, mm-hmm. couldn't couldn't um, couldn't avoid. That's a whole nother thing because I've heard that a lot. Buddies of mine, you know, people that I go to meetings are like, I had to go get my medicine, and I was, you know, I was a block away from places where I've shot up, where I've snorted, where I've done everything, and that's a that's a that's mm. a dangerous place to um, that's a dangerous place to be in. The other part of this, I think, is that, and I think this is, and this kind of goes back to the the separate silos. And I'm going to do something I normally don't do. I'm going to talk about another institution in Eastern Massachusetts because I think they're doing great, but I don't feel that bad because it's Mass General Hospital, and Mass General is like one of the best hospitals in the world yeah. ever, ever, ever. Shout year. out, yeah, Shout yeah, out yeah. So, so Mass General, you're doing a great job. And what they do, and it's led by this phenomenal doctor, Sarah Wakeman, who I absolutely love, and she kind of runs their addiction behavioral health space. And what they do is they they don't they know if someone presents, let's say with an opiate use disorder, they get them in there and they talk to them, and that person does not leave that clinic until they say, okay, you know, right now we've kind of got this treatment modality and it's getting better, but someone presents with an opiate use disorder or a substance use disorder, and it's all right. I want to talk to you about your alcoholism, your eating, your fill in the blanks, but nothing else. Whereas Mass General is kind of coming out and saying, all right, let's look at this more holistically. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the what we would refer to in many respects as the social determinants, right, that mm-hmm. are out there. Hey, how are you housed? Let's talk about some of these mental health stuff. You ever been, have you ever gotten a, you know, an SSRI, you know, for, to treat some type of, you know, low-grade depression or anxiety, mm-hmm. whatever it may be but they treat the whole of the person. How are you getting around? Okay, so you don't have a car. What about buses? How can we help you get to these bus stations? And they're, and it's not just, we're curious, mm-hmm. it's they're providing funding to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's a housing counselor, a mental health counselor, and they're treating the whole right. of the person. So one of the things, more so than any particular bill that I have filed, probably with the exception of the Narcan, because I think people are dying now, and we need to do that, is how do we kind of, transport that you know further west here in massachusetts so again it's not just uh okay you're struggling with alcohol go to an aa meeting right. uh, you know you're, you don't have housing okay let's go to housing but you're never asking the question about the other things that could be driving that if you find a lot of people who have gotten sober who have dealt with their mental health concerns so anything in behavioral health when they don't have stable housing um i want to meet that person mm-hmm. Um, because they exist, they certainly exist, but it's nowhere near as much as someone who has an apartment, is living on his buddy's couch. If you don't have a place to call home, whatever that looks like, right. whatever that looks like, good luck dealing with a lot of the other social determinants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I think we've I think we've talked a lot. Yeah. And it's yeah. probably time to let the senator go. So I'm going to yeah. make some space for some closing thoughts and then we can wrap <laughs> this up. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. By How the way. long went by right there? I don't know. I it feels no like idea. we've been here for like an hour and a half already. Like we're going on an hour and 15 as promised. Yeah, there it is. That was phenomenal. Thanks so much for coming in. It's I, really I, this amazing. This is great. To have I'd you. love to. I'd love to. Inv- I'm going to. I'm going to do a social taboo. I'm going to invite myself back. Oh, nice. Oh, you're definitely welcome back. <laughs> How about that? How about that? And, and, and I will certainly keep you all posted on a lot of the bills that come out. So thank you so That's much. Helpful. Thank you for yeah. doing this. Um, my thank number you. one, my, 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 my favorite right across there. <laughs> thank thank you. you for weighing in. And we'll see you all soon. Yeah. Right. Take right. care. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Yep. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. This has been another exciting episode of Adventures in Organized Chaos. I'm Terry. And I'm Coco. We'll see you next week. All right, then. See ya.
Yeah, flip your headphones. <laughs> I, so it's, I, I always... <laughs> I love it. I, there we go. Um, so I, I always do that. I, I was that guy. What? <laughs> what I do? Yeah. Is it like jacked up? What are, what are, yeah. what are I... <laughs> yeah, you got to turn them the other way. <laughs> oh, flip them. Like, flip them, flip them. I'm like, what? Oh, we got you now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're going to hear us. Oh, there you go. I just set myself up for, <laughs> for, for an hour and a half of... Of jokes. This is adventures I, I, and like, organized chaos. Well, it, it, yeah. it, it, it didn't feel right. And I'm like, all right, they're starting to look at me. What, what's going on here? Who's going to say it? Of course, my silent partner here didn't say anything. He's Thanks, silent. Buddy. That's why. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you. That was great. Now that we're now. all comfortable. Yeah. Right. Now that we're in the stopper. Right. 